Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Bible Church Podcast. Always reforming because we're always conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Welcome back to the Sovereign Grace Bible Podcast. I'm Pastor Jared Yancey, pastor of Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Hera, Oklahoma. We're going to continue our study in the book of Romans, studying the history of the law. Now, we have moved on into Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Previously in chapter 2, we have seen how the law is applied to both Jew and Gentile. And the law has an equity about it and is universally perfectly applied to all men. God doesn't have two kinds of standards, one for covenant people, one for non-covenant people. But rather, the law condemns the same actions done by both. Now, as we come to Romans chapter 3, since the Jews are condemned by their sins by the law, this naturally leads to a question. What advantage then hath the Jew What profit is there of circumcision? Well, if God gave the law to Jews, and they don't keep it, and they're condemned, why have it? Paul answers, What profit is there? Why, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And in those oracles, not only does it contain the law, and the condemnation of God, the wrath of God, but also the promises of God, and the promise of the one seed that would come and destroy the head of the serpent, that would undo the work of evil and sin done in the garden, the one that would fulfill all the types and shadows of that very law which condemned both Jew and Gentile. This brings up question Number two, found in verse three. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Why, how powerful can this word be? How powerful can the oracles of God be? When so many Jews did not believe, as being witnessed by the law itself. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written that thou mayest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Paul's answer here is that the unbelief of Israel, though they had the oracles of God, magnifies the justice of God. And it justifies God in his condemnation of sin. Which brings up the third question found in verse 5. But if our righteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. So he's saying there, Is God unrighteous to pour out his wrath and anger on sinful man? When the sin of man becomes the dark backdrop by which we 
perceive the glories and the brightness of God's righteousness of himself. So therefore, isn't it a good thing to have this dark and black backdrop in order that we might more clearly see the glory of God? God forbid, for how then shall God judge the world? For the truth that God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet also judged a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What, are we any better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both, Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Now, he is dealing with these questions about how the Jews relate to God. Why did God enter into covenant relationship with the Jews and give them his law, if after all that very law condemns them? This is very interesting now. Look at verse 9. And what then are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Now let's let's stop and refocus again on verse 9. How has Paul proven that all are under sin? Are we all under sin by receiving the written word and learning of God's law? And then after we know God's law, if we willingly break it, then that is sin? No. We have before proven both Jews and Gentiles that they are under sin because of the nature of the law that they have violated. Remember, that law that they have violated has its origin in the very nature of God. In a sense, it is the nature of God that they have violated. This is not like a traffic ticket where the speed could be adjusted or done away. Some states, some highways don't even have speed limits. This is not that case. This is not a case of God making a law or changing a law or adding to or taking away from any kind of statute, but rather this is so far what we have learned is that this is a violation of the very nature of God. And that, as such, all Jews and all Gentiles are all under sin. Now, we haven't gotten into any kind of covenant relationship that would bar... Nope, nope, nope. Now, it's very interesting here. Look at these verses that Paul is going to use to prove that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And this is a key un uh, this is a key concept to understand the nature of the written law. He is going to quote here from several sources. He's going to quote from the Psalms, he's going to quote from the law, he's going to quote from the prophets. And he is going to create an ironclad case to prove the statement he puts forth that all are under sin, both Jew and Gentile. 
And this is something in particular that you need to grasp. A vital concept to understand. That you do not need to be in a covenantal relationship to be condemned by these words here that we're going to read through verse 18. From 10 to verse 18, apply to both Jew and Gentile. As it is written, and again, this applies to Jew and Gentile. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seek after God. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit, and the poison of asps is in their lips. Whoso mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19 sums up the thoughts of Paul here. We find a summation in verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world may become guilty before God. And is not this the very first step of becoming a Christian? When we compare the history of the law versus the order of salvation, the very first beginnings of salvation is conviction for sin. I certainly say, where there is no conviction of sin, there is no genuine work of the Holy Spirit. Those who are saved must be saved from something. Are you saved? What are you saved from? You must be saved from your guilt before God. You must know that you're guilty before Him. You must know that He is just and right to condemn you for your sins. If you do not understand that you are guilty before God, you have no need of salvation. Saved from what? What are you going to be saved from? Why do you need salvation? But rather, if these things are true, if you're not righteous, if you don't understand, if you don't seek after God, if you are out of the way, if you're unprofitable to God, then that one, I think, is a stern rebuke, a very sharp rebuke from God. God says, you bring no profit to God. And if you think about that for a moment, what does a sinner add to God? What does a sinner give God except rebellion and hatred and wrath and sin and joining in with the devil and his ways and fighting against God? What profit is there in a hard-hearted, unrepentant sinner? What can God get out of such a person? Sinners are unprofitable, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. This is God's divine standard of good. That standard of good is the law. Therefore, we must be under a law in order to be found guilty under the law. The breaking of the law is called sin. 
Therefore, we conclude that all are under sin. That was the premise put forth in verse 9 and concluded in 19. We know whatsoever thing the law saith. It saith to them who are under the law. Therefore, all Jews and all Gentiles are under some form of law. And that law is binding and authoritative that it stops every mouth. For every mouth, every person has been violated this law. And the world may become guilty before God. So now the entire world is under a law. We have violated that law and before God are guilty. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And this is very important. By the law is the knowledge of sin. How would you know that you are guilty before God if you don't know the law? How would you know that you stand in danger of eternal judgment if you don't know God's law? God's law is a reflection of his own nature. The law doesn't make the sin. It doesn't create the sin. But rather it communicates what is sin. And in that way also communicates what is righteousness. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Therefore it must be incumbent upon us to learn of God's law. That we may learn what pleases him and learn what displeases him. For here's a law, a standard of behavior. There is a law that judges heart, mind, and deeds. And that we are accountable to. And therefore, if we are... And therefore, verse 20, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, because we are already guilty. And how can future obedience atone for, or make God to ignore past disobedience you tell your child to clean your room and they have one hour to clean the room and you come back in an hour and they haven't even started and you open the door and they're reading a book or something they look up and see you and then they jump off the bed and start cleaning up real fast does their newfound obedience suddenly wipe out their past disobedience certainly not We are without excuse. The law is written on paper. The law was given to Jews. Most of the people listening to this have read the scriptures, have read the word of God, have, they have read the law. And therefore you stand in the same camp as the Jews who had the law and yet forsook the law. So much of the world simply has the law written on their hearts. And the conviction of them being made in the image of God. They are ignorant of God's inspired word. They are ignorant of that law which communicates to them that they have sinned and stand in judgment. Any kind of guilt which does not conclude with the sinner being completely helpless 
is a false guilt, an incomplete guilt. There is some ignorance about the person. If you think that there is something you can do, say, achieve, promise, that would make the law void, that would make you anything but completely helpless in the hand of God, then you are ignorant of the law. The conclusion you must have when you look at the law in all of its depth, in all of its spiritualness, in all of its holiness, you must conclude that you can never be justified in his sight by deeds of the law, by your own righteousness of any kind, in any way. The law is ironclad, no exceptions. If you think you're a good person, and I call you a liar, let every man be liar and God be true. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You are not a good person. When you compare yourself to other people, there are people that have done worse things than you, while there was even people that did worse things than Hitler. There were other dictators killed far more people than Hitler. Therefore, can we say, well, compared to Mao Zedong, that Hitler was a good person? Oh, certainly not. Neither can man compare himself with men, for we don't stand in judgment of man or man's law. Heaven and hell are not determined upon legislature or the opinions and feelings of men, but rather heaven and hell stand on the very nature of God, for he is too holy to behold iniquity, and it cannot abide in his holy presence. There is a standard you must acquaint yourself with. But unfortunately, as we will learn later on, you cannot know that standard of yourself unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to it. Your native pride will shut your eyes and your mind off to any possibility that somebody like you could actually be completely helpless, completely guilty before God. You will refuse to believe it. Self-righteousness is part and parcel of the human nature since the fall. You ignore the word of God. It is a spitefulness that you have not repented yet. It just goes to sure that you certainly deserve the damnation that is promised to those who do not repent. How dare you shake your fist to God? You are the creature. He is the almighty creator. He is all good and wise, and you are wicked. You are ignorant and poor. What are you? How dare you fight against God? He has given you everything, life and breath, and yet you refuse to worship, or you demand that God comes down and accepts whatever worship you offer on your own terms. You don't get that choice. You don't get a choice in how to approach God. And he has not left us simply here with the rigors of the law. He has not left us simply here in the judgment of God, wouldn't it be a t sad, terrible thing if the book of Romans ended right here at verse 20? It could. God would not be unjust to. He could have left us like the angels. There's no redemption for angels. There was no Messiah for angels. But there was an election. There were angels whom God, before the foundation of the world, determined should abide forever in his presence in a sinless state of worship 
and there are those who are in league with Satan, who God elected spend an eternity in darkness, with chains with their very names written on them, reserved for them. So God is not obligated to extend mercy in the least. But he has. He's extended mercy. And he's given many promises throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, the promise of the one to come. In the New Testament, we have the promises of the one who has already come and will come again. Don't give up hope. See yourself, I urge you, as completely helpless before God and his justice. Don't justify yourself in any way. And I can tell you, the more grace God has upon you, the more you will see yourself as vile. He must increase, and your righteousness must decrease. This is the gift of God. We're going to see here, we're going to see here next week, something called faith. Remember, Paul had began his salutation in the book of Romans with the just shall live by faith. And what he's doing here for these these two and a half chapters is establishing the foundation for why salvation is by faith and not by works of the law, not even works of love, not even works of morality, not by works at all, but by faith alone. Because we are so completely guilty before God that nothing we do can aid in our justification. And we will begin to look at how faith relates to guilty sinners. Thank you and God bless.